Well, that's enough of sport for this week. Good morning to Daniel Mumby. Good morning, Richard Dale. Shall we talk some movies instead? Uh, yeah, uh, let's move away from the uh, rather depressing cricket scores. Yes, and everything that's being called off elsewhere. <laughs> yes. Anyway. I wish we could have a frozen pitch in Dubai. That would help yeah. our bowlers <laughs> no end. Yes. How are you today? I'm pretty good, actually. Good, good. How about you? Uh, fine. Little bit snuffly. So if I'm sounding a little deep this morning, it's because of me snuff or not, because I've suddenly got a deeper voice. Well, I shall have to go higher to overcompensate. Right. <laughs> shall we uh, have a look at the local films? Yeah, good idea. A uh, couple on at the uh, Playhouse here in Annick on Monday afternoon, 4.30, Zac Efron in Charlie St. Cloud. Yeah, um, I think the full title is The Death and Life of Charlie St. Cloud, but yeah, it's... It's a more interesting film than you think. It's about a guy who gains the ability to see the ghost of his dead brother, so it owes a debt to some extent to things like um, Field of Dreams, the Kevin Cosner film, where, of course, it's, yeah. you know, if you build it, who will come, dead baseball players and your father. Um, no, it was billed when it first came out as um, sort of... Uh, teenage schmaltz, but actually it's quite interesting. Oh, right. And then Tuesday, af no, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Paul Newman, Elizabeth Taylor, that's not a new film, is it? Uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Which is great. One of Elizabeth Taylor's best performances, because I think that was based, obviously, on the Tennessee Williams play, and I think that was one of the first things Elizabeth Taylor did after she'd had training at the actor's studio, so when she was a proper actress rather yeah. than just a pretty face. Right. Playhouse box office number is 01665 510785. And we will be talking about Elizabeth Taylor to a certain extent when we come to review Carnage because of its connections with oh, right. Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Okay. Ah. Uh, up at the Mortings in Berwick this afternoon at 2.30, Hugo brackets 2D, close brackets. <laughs> yes, um, Martin Scorsese's, you know, um, return to form, it's certainly his best film since, um, well, since The Aviator, maybe even since Goodfellas, I'd be so, uh, I'd be so bold to say. No, I think it doesn't particularly matter if you see it in 2D or 3D, because the 3D is bound up with the idea that it's a film about the mechanics of old cinema, and of course the Lumiere brothers were doing 3D back in 1896, so it's not a newer thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing it, and if you haven't, you should yes. catch it. Half Price Monday at 8 o'clock, it's Contagion. I know, Steven Soderbergh, I don't think he's a genius, but this is a good romping B-movie with some good performances in. Tuesday evening, it's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I presume that's the American remake, rather than the um, Swedish-Danish original. I think it is, yes. Has it got Daniel Craig in? Yes, it has. In that case, it's the remake. Yes, he's not Swedish, is he? Unfortunately not. They, <laughs> you know, he, he could pass the Swedish, sort of blonde, blue eyes. Yeah, true. Um, yeah, I think the remake, directed by David Fincher, it's... It's everything you'd expect from a David Fincher film in the sense that it's very stylish and it moves on at a fair old pace, but they haven't really made enough changes from the original to justify the remake. So I would, if you want your Fincher fix, I would go and watch Zodiac instead because it's exactly the same length but more substantial. And then Wednesday evening, and it's got a little Oscar on the thing here, so I guess it's a good film, The Help. Yeah, that Help has been Oscar nominated, I think, for Best Picture, and it's, it's attracted a lot of... Um, mixed feelings about that, because a lot of people felt it was racist when it came out. I think that it's manipulative, um, but there are good performances from Viola Davis and uh, Emma Stone, who was in Easy A not so long ago, so I would say go and see it, but it's not the most subtle film in the world. Okay. Malting's box office number 01289 Okay. On to the top ten. Yes. Or what's not in the top ten, still not WE. Yes, when they were doing the rundown on um, a certain BBC-themed radio station, they were saying it was down to number 26, and in its first week it had opened at 14, so, so clearly... A bit of a flop. No, clearly negative word of mouth has done for WE, and um, good for them. Yes. 
I suppose big budget, low take, it'll be a cult classic for you soon. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually not as fatuous as it sounds because when we come on to our cult film, which was completely vilified on first release, it may be that in sort of 30 or 40 years' time, people will listen back to these podcasts and say, he doesn't know anything about films, Transformers 3 is a masterpiece. And you'll be raving about WE. <laughs> Well, maybe if not. If I'm still around, then no. Yes. If Madonna makes a good film, then I might change my mind yeah. about it. Number ten this week: uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Ghost Protocol, which has grossed an awful lot. Yes, has to get you out of that little slip up. Uh, yeah, I don't have any great loyalty to the Mission Impossible series. I think that no, Brad Bird is an overrated director. In IMAX, the the vertiginous sequences of jumping off buildings look quite good. My only hope is that Simon Pegg's substantial fee for his supporting role, he'll give that straight to Edgar Wright so they can get back to making another film together. All right, number nine is The Sitter. Which is rubbish. I mean, it is... Jonah Hill has been described as play, as doing a Norbit. You, you think back to when Eddie Murphy was nominated for Dreamgirls, I think Best Supporting Actor, and everyone thought, actually, this is the guy we really liked in Beverly Hills Cop before he went off and made those stupid films. And then just as the Oscar nominations came out, Norbit was released, and everyone realised that actually they hated him. Well, Jonah Hill's kind of done the same thing with this, because he's been nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Moneyball, which is a very interesting sports film. And then he goes and makes this, which is, you know a film which is at least ten years out of date in terms of its stoner jokes, and it's just depressing to see both him and the director David Gordon Green squandering the talent that they clearly have. Right, number eight, The Iron Lady. You know, I think we've, we've said pretty much all there is to say. I think, you know, if I understand where people are coming from in terms of depicting The Iron Lady on a more personal level, but the fact of the matter is, you know, you can make a story about sort of loneliness and despair of old age, but you don't, but why would you make that story about Margaret Thatcher? Because that's the least interesting part of her life. We move on to number seven and Underworld Awakening. Yeah, pretty much what you would expect from the Underworld series. You no, know, Kate Beckinsale running around in a lot of latex and some rubbish CGI werewolves. No, for late night viewing after you've had a, a bad curry and you need something to wash it down with, then it's fine. But, you know, the plot is completely interchangeable with the other three films. Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, number six. Yeah, which is you know, pretty much as good as the first one. No, it, it's clear demonstration that when Guy Ritchie doesn't have a hand in the script, he's actually a pretty good director. And I think that Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law are perfectly cast. The film that's probably going to win loads of Oscars at number five, The Artist. Yeah, it's it's scooping Best Picture pretty much everywhere. That, I can't remember exactly when the BAFTAs are, but they can't be too long away. Um, yeah, it's... I think the thing about The Artist is is that it's interesting how people have embraced a film about the history of cinema, which, you know, it, it's essential it's point is, you no, know, you can have different mediums or different styles within a medium coexisting, but it's done in such a populist and mainstream way that it's yeah. clearly working. I don't think it will be a problem if it wins Best Picture. No, I don't think so. Monster in Paris at number four. They're perfectly fine. You know, children's animation didn't need to be in 3D and it's not Hugo, but the songs are quite nice. Uh, the Grey. Is it The Grey? I'm reading my writing yeah. here. I had yeah. a lovely typescript, so you came and changed it all. Well, I'm sorry <laughs> for having the correct top ten. Yeah. <laughs> um, Joe Carnahan's best film. I mean, Joe Carnahan, who made the, the film adaptation of The A-Team and the rubbish Smoking Aces, you thought for a while, oh, he's just going to be making mainstream dross. Yeah. But actually, this is not the sort of nuts and bolts taken with wolves film that the posters would lead you to believe. You know, it's a good performance by Liam Neeson. It's got a decent... 70s-esque premise, which, I mean, some of the shots in it actually reminded me of The Thing, which is very high praise. Um, yeah. I don't think it's up there with The Thing, but no. If you take it in a slightly trashy way, there is actually more to it than meets the eye. 
The Descendants, number two. Yeah, I don't think it's Alexander Payne's finest or funniest work. I mean, it's not as scabrous as about Schmidt or Sideways. I was having a conversation with someone um, this week about Sideways. They were arguing it was the worst film they'd ever seen, and I was trying to prove how wrong they were, because it's fantastic. Um, but I think, you know, it's a nice, gentle film. I don't think it's particularly groundbreaking or remarkable, but George Clooney is quite good, and, no, I think it's his turn as far as the Oscars are concerned. And finally, talking about Oscar nominations, Lee Hall nominated for an Oscar for Best Screenplay for War Horse. Yes, um, it's clearly hitting its target audience. It's, num it's been number one now for something like four weeks. Yeah, and by a fair margin, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The takes. Yeah, I, I don't know. Has Spielberg been nominated for Best Director? We'll uh, have to find out during, yeah. during this one, because that would be interesting. I don't think he's got a big chance of winning, but it would be interesting to see if he has, because, uh, you know, I've I've started to warm to it. I, when I reviewed it, I said I was in two minds about whether it was a proper Spielberg work of sentimentality yeah. or whether it was, you know, him trying to be serious and, as usual, failing. So I think it's... I don't think it's a great work because it is episodic, but it feels honestly sentimental and, you know, it, like I say, it is clearly hitting its target audience of early teenagers. So, there's the top ten. Your recommendations? Um, well, I would say War Horse, um, yeah. if only to sort of decide whether or not it's a proper Spielberg or not. The Descendants, because I like Alexander Payne, and... The thing is, most people will have seen the sort of the bottom half of the top ten by now, so if, if you haven't seen the artist, you need to see it, otherwise go for the grey. Okay, our cult film... After a bit of Dolly Parton. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Oh, I love that. Dolly Parton and the coat of many colours. And no, she didn't write Joseph from the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats. <laughs> yes, that was my mistake when yes, I Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Of course. Yeah, that was actually quite nice, actually. I mean, I, yes. I like Dolly Parton in very small doses. Yes. That was quite good. That's one of my favourites of hers. Right, um... Change to the advertised uh, cult classic this week. We will come back to... Heathers. In due course. Yes. Today, we're Maybe doing Peeping even... Tom. Yes, we are. Um, 1960, so we're going back quite a bit. Psychological thriller directed by Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburg of fame. Right. Um, who is, you know, they made some of basically the, ba the greatest British films ever made under the moniker of The Archers with Powell directing and Pressburg of by and large writing and producing the script. Yeah. And I have a great interest in this area because my uh, godfather, who's a guy called Martin Coombs, actually wrote a book on Powell and Pressburg called Two Exceptional men which is a rather highly regarded biography of them um they started out in the uh, with their partnership in the early 40s working for the ministry of information basically churning out the sort of propaganda in the same way as uh, do you remember the basil rathbone sherlock holmes yeah films? when yes. no there's a strong argument that a lot of them were made with the intention of bringing america into the war yeah so you had them making things like contraband and the 49th parallel and one of our aircraft is missing which yeah. were very much sort of pro-military pro-transatlantic alliance so that you know but after the americans came into the war after you no know, in the words of jeremy clarkson having breakfast for two years <laughs> <laughs> Lovely way yeah. of putting it. Yes. So after that, after that propaganda ceased, effectively, or became less necessary, they actually got a bit more artistic freedom. So they made things like The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which has got yeah. some fantastic makeup and features the immortal line, But my dear sir, war starts at midnight. <laughs> Um, Canterbury Tale, which reworks Geoffrey Chaucer and does it quite well. Um, I Know Where I'm Going, which actually I've argued in the past is a predecessor to The Wicker Man because of its story of people yeah. going to a, a lonely island and getting lost, but it's a really great romantic comedy. Um, Black Narcissus, which is a psychological thriller about nuns with a barnstorming performance by Deborah Carr, and not really good. The Red Shoes, which is the best Hans Christian Andersen adaptation, and actually yeah. the first thing I ever saw at the Annick Playhouse. And, of course, Matter of Life.
Life and Death with David Niven, which is yeah. you know, still regarded as one of the greatest ever made. I mean, it's a classic example. Now, we think of them as a British institution when, of course, in the way of so many British things, one of them was English and one of them was Hungarian. And yeah. Britain's had as a history of being a sort of melting pot for other countries' talents yeah. to come and create a specific identity of films. And, of course, the family influence continues because Andrew MacDonald, who is Danny Boyle's producer, is Emmerich Pressburger's grandson, while Thelma Schoonmaker, who's Powell's um, wife, has been Martin Scorsese's editor of choice for the last 20-odd years. Funny old business. Exactly. Um, it has an interesting history. It was scripted by Leo Marx, who was one of Britain's best codebreakers and for the Special Operations Executive in World War II. I don't think he was one of the Bletchley Park lot who were looking after the Enigma stuff, so yeah. he wouldn't have run across Alan Turing, but uh, he was involved in that. He would later, and I, I didn't know this myself, he would later voice the devil in Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> so... They do everything. Yeah, it's an unusual yes. career trajectory yeah. from spy to screenwriter and finally Satan. Yes. Um, so the film was the second that Powell had made after the Archers were dissolved because they made Ill Met My Moonlight in 1957 and then basically decided that their partnership had run its course. And um, it effectively ended their friendship. But in terms of how the film was, was treated, that was the least of its problems. It was perhaps the most vilified picture of the 1960s when it was first released. I mean, I'll, I'm going to quote some of the reviews now, which are incredibly extreme. Picture Show called it the nastiest horror film to be produced for a long time, gets progressively more scary and sick-making, a rather unhealthy film. Tribune said the only really satisfactory way to dispose of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer, even then the stench would remain. <laughs> Uh, worst of all, the BFI Monthly Film Bulletin, you'd think the British Film Institute would have its head screwed on, said this. An authentically sadistic film. It is only surprising that while the Marquis de Sade's books are still forbidden after practically two centuries, it is possible, within the commercial industry, to produce films like Peeping Tom. De Sade at least veiled his enjoyment under the pretense of being a moralist. It was very well received at the time, then. <laughs> Completely. You cannot get yeah. more scathing. And I say someone, you know, as someone who yes. enjoys slacking off a bad film. After these kind of initial spate of reviews, the film was pulled from cinemas after a week and basically disappeared and, you know, it yeah. effectively ended Powell's career. He did go over to Australia and make a couple of lower-budget efforts in the early 70s, but he yeah. spent the rest of his career effectively passing on his craft to budding filmmakers in a producing level and writing his autobiography. It only began to be rehabilitated in 1979 when, no, Martin Scorsese comes into this story a lot, but he was asked by, um, it might have been the United Artists to remake the film, because they'd yeah. heard about this, you know, this one print in the seediest part of New York, so they went to this single-scene cinema in, in the seed, in a, in a, I think it might actually be in a, a a gentleman's viewing theatre yeah. that was showing it for some strange reason. And uh, they had the executives there, and they showed this sort of print of Peeping Tom, which was sort of 35 mil, and it was degraded, but you could still just yeah. about see it. And after the screening, the executive turned to Martin Scorsese and said, you can't beat that. I'm sorry, but you just can't. And Scorsese's been spending back to the last 30 years championing it and getting yeah. it re repaired and so forth. And it's now regarded as a masterpiece and one of the greatest British films of all time. The BFI have sort of atoned for it because they have listed it as number 78 on their top 100 list. And uh, I concur with this. I yeah. first saw Peeping Tom at the Tyneside Cinema last year when they were yeah. doing a 24-hour rolling screening. And it was a midnight movie, which is the best way to see it. And no, yeah. film's 52 years old. It's, you know, it's in Technicolor. It's, yeah. you know, you'd think I was so terrified. I have never been more scared <laughs> by a 60s yeah. film. It's fantastic. So the plot is, I mean, we're sort of talking about the reputation, what's it actually about. Uh, it's set in London, and it follows the exploits of a young man called Mark Lewis, who is played by an Austrian actor called Carl Boehm, 
and he makes his living working for a film uh, company as a camera operator and focus puller yeah and so now going between the subject and the camera with a tape measure to see what lens they need to use he supplements his income by doing softcore illicit photo shoots sort of you no know, seaside postcard but no, yeah. the next one up which is sold under the counter on you no know, in the shop below yeah. no, the flat which he rents secretly however mark is a voyeur who also practices in serial killing so it's interesting we've gone from <laughs> wanting to do an 18 certificate film about high school to a 15 certificate film about serial killing which yes. means i will tread carefully still but yeah you know, you're not going to get as much yeah. in terms of explicitness um we see in a flashback that he was traumatized by his real life father who's played by michael powell who you know in a flashback scene drops lizards on him when he was asleep and films his you no know, immediate yeah. response to try and capture the essence of human fear and mark is in his words creating a documentary about the fear of his victims and what he does is that he has a camera secreted on his person. He follows ladies of the night around, or you no, know, just women that he's fascinated by, and then films them while stabbing them to death with a blade which is mounted on one leg of his tripod and so they can actually see their impending death and he sort of films it and then watches the footage afterwards. It's, you no, know, it sounds very weird, but it's... Yes. it's he's obviously a bit sick. Yes, yes he, was, he is a little bit sick, but for reasons that will come, become clear, you actually feel sorry for him rather than just yeah. hating him. Um, his life changes, however, when a young lady called Helen, played by uh, Anna Massey, becomes, you know, fascinated with him, actually slightly falls in love with him, and she gets dragged into the dark world of Mark's documentary as the police start to suspect that actually he might be involved in the spate of murders going on yeah. around this part of East London. What a great actress she was. Yeah, she was fantastic. I think she she's still alive because I thought she died recently. I'm not sure. Yeah, but she was a really great actress. Um, I'm going to start, unfortunately, by bringing up a painful memory for you. Um, do you remember when we talked when we talked about American Wealth in London? Out that week was Diary of a Wimpy Kid 2 and I made a reference to Robert Altman's Popeye and you went all sort of squirming because you hate that film. Yes. Um, yes. Well, there is a kind of connection with this. Robert Altman, in his... Um, in the last stages of his career, I think just before he'd finished The Prairie Home Companion, which turned out to be his last film, he was interviewed by The Onion and he remarked, you know, in his words, you tend to love your least successful children the most. And he was saying that, you no, know, for all the critical acclaim that he'd had for Shortcuts or McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Nashville, or MASH, of course, which is the yeah. great Robert Altman film, he actually felt that, you no, know, Popeye was his most personal and most precious work and that was the one he could only sort of see again. I know that's, that doesn't come... Truly easy. awful, but anyway... It, it was, yes. I mean, it's like saying, I mean, um, when William Friedkin was interviewed about what his favourite films were, he said, of the films that he'd made, rather than, he could have said, you no, know, The Exorcist, The French yes. Connection, Cruising, but instead he said Jade and Deal of the Century, both of which are absolutely terrible. But, yeah, yeah. filmmaker's choice. And I, what the point being, I wonder whether Michael Powell felt the same way about Peeping Tom, the film that, you no know, destroyed yeah. him as a filmmaker but actually the, the work that he felt was his most personal yeah. which he was most proud I mean he remarked in his autobiography I made a film that nobody wants to see and then 30 years later everyone has either seen it or wants to see it so it, no, it was ahead of its yeah. time clearly but unlike Popeye which does produce reactions ranging from yours of terrible to mm, maybe it's a guilty pleasure but that's being yeah. generous I think you know, there can be no doubt that Peeping Tom is a blistering masterpiece I mean certainly Prior to Clockwork Orange, 11 years later, you will struggle to find a more audacious and daring yeah. piece of British cinema. And it would, you know, coming at the beginning of a decade which would be characterised by filmmakers rebelling against the conventions of melodrama and, you know, just basically being rebellious for its own sake in some ways, Peeping Tom is a trailblazer. It sort of stepped into the darkness with a red-hot torch, but at the cost of setting its coattails on fire as it did yeah. it. So, you know, it needed, in many ways, it needed to burn out to actually move things on a bit. 
It's interesting to look back at this time because this and Psycho were released within about two months of each other. And so if you knew, if you were looking back knowing nothing about the films at all, you would expect that both of them would be big hits. Yeah. Because would you have seen Psycho the first time round? Or maybe you would have been a bit too young. I think I would have been too young, yeah, yes. Because it was an ex-certificate, wasn't yeah. it? So, yeah. Yes. You didn't feel the, the need to sneak in to see the... Well, we didn't have a cinema in our hometown, so it was like six miles or something to the nearest cinema it just didn't really go out very much yeah it's a long way to walk in two pairs of socks which is yeah. the way that many people used to sneak into exit <laughs> films uh, i can't speak of course because no by the time i came along yeah. they were all 18s yes so i missed out on that um so like i say looking at them on the surface you would expect them to both take money because they are quite similar both yeah. psychological thrillers both have a disturbing reputation because of course hitchcock's film is based on the real life story of ed gein who yeah. is you know, a serial killer and uh, both directors are admired as British greats. I mean, you could argue that Alfred Hitchcock as the brand had more weight than Michael yeah. Powell's because you know, a lot of Powell and Pressburger's work was originally not very highly appreciated by critics who thought that they were just sort of fluffy and nonsense yeah. and actually documentary filmmaking was the best place to go. And then ten years later they turned around and said, actually these are all brilliant. <laughs> um, so instead you have, no, on the one hand Psycho takes absolute bucket loads at the box office and scoops four Oscar nominations, whereas Peeping Tom gets a week in the cinemas and there's yeah. then effectively no torn apart all the yeah. loads of the prints are burned actually by some of the more angry people who went to see it and uh, yeah it's never seen in, for another 19 yeah. years i mean it would be very tempting in these seemingly enlightened times to just sit back and blame the audiences for peeping tom's mentality you know it's very easy for you and me to sit here and you know people saying no look at reviews saying oh it's evil it's vulgar it's repellent and say oh you were just being stupid you no know, audiences in the late 50s and early 60s were just small-minded yeah. we're so much better now but that is quite rich i mean if you look at the reactions recently to things like a serbian film or the human centipede series um or maybe you no know, it's you cannot assume that you know we've just moved on from that hysteria just yeah. because something with that subject matter doesn't exist anymore i mean the torture porn or so-called torture porn wave that we've been going through for the last six or seven years it's generated as much vitriol as peeping tom did so yeah. we're not above it yeah but even watching the film 50 years later you can actually understand why even the most open-minded people in 1960 would be shocked by it not because the audience are small-minded and blinkered yeah. but actually because pal's vision is so audacious that it was probably just too much for people to take yeah. in regardless of whether or not they were intelligent filmgoers or not i mean it was made at a time when cinema was still very much focused on the life and trials of the rich and famous i mean we think of you know film as a director's medium now where you know we say the new film by such and such yeah. but actually with the exception of alfred hitchcock who had a brand unto himself because of his unique style people generally would go and see films for you no know, the actors that were playing. Yeah. so let's go and see a clark gable picture yeah. or an animasi picture rather than yeah. go and see a hitchcock or a michael Indeed, Powell. yeah i mean that sort of auteur theory only started to grip when you got the french new wave with things like jean renoir francois Truffaut, and jean-luc yeah. goddard um, so you have films as star vehicles, and by the time you get to the 1950s, they are often, let's put these famous people on the screen and see what they do. So you get yeah. shamelessly predictable plots, which consist of nothing more than talking, smoking, dancing and kissing, often, but not always in that order. Beatles films, Cliff Richard films. Yes, exactly. Tommy Steele films. Yes, or oh, no, Hollywood musicals, <laughs> and no, when you, you look, the likes of Carousel and so forth. I mean, when Hollywood attempted to tackle, in inverted commas, difficult subjects, or to sort of interpose itself yeah. among the less fortunate, it did so in a way which was either deeply patronising in the way of My Fair Lady, in which, you know, we, we know this 
you never really believe that Audrey Hepburn is ugly enough to be a flower. <laughs> I mean, yes. I think you can get over that, but yeah. no, it's it's not that brilliant. Or it kind of goes in a way which smooths over any of the rough edges. I mean, if you look at something like um, Gigi from 1955, which is this massive Technicolor musical about a, uh, a, a London courtesan, and you just think... No, I'm not entirely sure about this because they're all dressed in the most lavish clothes imaginable and everyone's speaking in perfect English and the music and they're yeah. they can sing with perfect pitch. So <laughs> if you're gonna do a film about courtesans, at least do it properly. Yes. Um so the problem wasn't simply that the subject matter of Peeping Tom was miles away from the glamour of the Red Shoes, which is yeah. another masterpiece, and I know Red Shoes is an astonishing piece of work. It was the fact that it portrayed subject matter like you no know, prostitution like sleazy softcore models and above all the serial killer in a way which is not just realistic but it was empathetic yeah and it's interesting that you had this alongside the start of the british new wave with things like saturday night and sunday morning and this sporting yeah. life and which eventually gives us if yeah where you have effectively an old school director effectively turning his back on the melodrama that made him famous and saying actually that stuff won't work anymore yeah. we need to approach real life in a way that is actually believable yeah. Because um, would you have seen a lot of the Powell and Pressburgers when you were growing up? And in spite of what you were saying about sort of um, cinema, would you have caught stuff like Red Shoes or Matter of Life and Death? Uh, I don't remember them, but yeah. uh, I'll think about that one. Yeah. So you have that. So that's the reason, essentially, why you why Peeping Tom would have been so yeah. shocking because it just eschewed conventions in so many ways. I mean, you can kind of see that in. No, with Powell turning his back on melodrama in the character played by Maura Shearer, because Maura Shearer was a professional ballet dancer who had played Vicky Page in The Red Shoes and they got on really well and Powell had been persuading her for ages and ages to make more films, but she yeah. put her dancing career first. And there is a sequence where um, Mark Lewis, played by Carl Boehm, is, is doing some filming no, out of working hours and Moira Shearer is sort of dancing around in the yeah. studio because he's trying to get some unique shots of her and uh, he, Powell allows Moira Shearer to perform this very flamboyant four and a half minute dance routine which you know it looks like it could have been cut straight from the rehearsals for the yeah. Red Shoes which you know all the dancing was done in one take and it's very yeah. well done and Vicky and Moira Shearer was a great dancer but then so you sort of start with the Red Shoes premise and then in comes the tripod with the blade <laughs> and in comes yeah. the scream as if to say that those days are over. I'm yeah. not that director anymore. The yeah. film needs to change. Um, Martin Scorsese, when he was um, sort of, when he was pushing for the film's rehabilitation, he was interviewed for a book called Scorsese on Scorsese and he was asked about Peeping Tom. Um, the other great film about filmmaking of the age, uh, which is arguably the more famous, is Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, mm. which in turn inspired the Rob Marshall musical Nine. Yeah. Um, and no, Eight and a Half is a classic, Nine's a mess. Um, but Martin Scorsese said this about the two, I have always felt that Peeping Tom and Eight and a Half say everything that can be said about filmmaking, about the process of dealing with film, the objectivity and subjectivity of it, and the confusion between the two. Eight and a Half captures the glamour and enjoyment of filmmaking, while Peeping Tom shows the aggression of it, how the camera violates from studying them you can discover everything about people who make films blah 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 so you have i mean this is actually three years prior to fellini's work so you can't really argue that it was a response to it yeah but it does very much put it i mean there's you no know, fellini for him cinema was this thing of it was something inherently magical it was yeah. you no know, a high art form it was you no know, an up there with opera up yeah. there with popular you know, with popular song and you no know, it was something to be celebrated and the creative process was celebrated whereas powell in an act of, no, above anything else, brutal self-deprecation, because he was, you know, effectively yeah. characterising the director as a murderer, yeah. saying, no, directors will exploit the actors, directors will manipulate people, you know, will even go so far in the world of the film as to kill them just for the yeah. sake of getting the perfect shot, you know. 
those do tie in with Hitchcock's comments about no actors are not cattle, they should just be treated like cattle. <laughs> which is the famous comment. Yeah. And of course, on one of his films, I think it might have been, um, whichever one Carol Lombard is, she actually um, played a prank on him by driving three cattle with the actors' names on onto the set on the first day of shooting. So, are you sure about this, Hitch? Because I've signed the contract, but if you want to treat me like this, you better get someone else. And in con so, in contrast to. Um, the fairy tale quality of Powell's earlier works, because you look at something like The Red Shoes, which has lengthy dream sequences, or I Know Where I'm Going, which is you no know, a romantic comedy with strong fantasy elements, yeah. and there's a subplot with a curse, and I Know Where I'm Going is a very good film. Um, this is, no, there is very little in the way of childlike magic about Peeping Tom. I mean, it presents film as a medium which is characterized by darkness and strange noises. I mean, there's a sequence where they go into Mark's dark room, which is built into his little flat. And it's it's almost like wandering into a haunted house or Frankenstein's lab, because instead of sort of the that you get in haunted house yeah. movies, you get the sort of the flicking of metal switches and the drip, drip, yeah. drip of silver nitrate mm. as the films are processing. Yeah. So it's very naturally creepy. And um, when the, no, they, there's a sequence where Anna Massey sneaks in without him and turns on his projector and showing all the films of the women he's killed. Gosh. And it's, it's like, yeah. it's like there's a strange whirring insect to the film. Because yeah. you remember, you remember in the early sequences of Blade Runner where they're doing the tests with the Voigt-Kampf machine and it's, you know, this strange um, yeah. thing looking in the eyes and it's sort of, you know, uh, inhaling an exhaling like a, well, when um, Ridley Scott was designing that film, he likened that object to a praying mantis, just this yeah. sinister creature that would just sort of sit and wait to pounce and it characterizes the projector yeah. as like that as this thing that could prey on you at any minute so having likened filmmaking to murder Powell then goes one step beyond and actually turns the camera on us and saying well this isn't all my fault it's actually the audience yeah. of wireistic by their very nature I mean it's you know the argument is you no know, if you're paying no, you are voyeuristic because you are spending your time, you're paying your good hard-earned money to sit in the dark for two hours watching the lives of other people, yeah. and these people have no ability to interact with you or to fight back or to yeah. sort of pull the blinds and say, I don't want you in my life. So there is something inherently voyeuristic about film, and that links back, I suppose, to what we were talking about all those years, all those months ago, sorry, with Blue Velvet. Yes. And yeah. the idea of you know, audiences, that it, it achieves that same mesmerising feeling that David Lynch got, which is that... I'm slightly creeped out by this, I really don't know what's going on, but I'm not going to look away yeah. because I'm so in the zone with this. And it's, you see the lives play out in such a detail that you understand how someone like Mark, who had had a, a traumatised childhood, you know, other than yeah. that he's, no, he's, he's withdrawn and shy, but other than the, the, the horrible trauma of his father, he's actually perfectly okay. Yeah. You understand how he becomes so morbidly obsessed with something, so you actually end up not condoning his murders, but you understand and you empathise with him. And I think that was the moral thing that they yeah. tipped the guy from BFI over the edge and comparing him <laughs> to the Marquis de Sade. Which, you know, if you've seen Salo, there is no comparison. No, Peeping Tom is completely tame in comparison to Salo. So if you, but if you take it outside of the commentary on voyeurism, and there is a lot of stuff to read into that, and we don't entirely have time to go into all of it, it's actually, if you want to watch it as a full-on horror film, then it absolutely works brilliantly. And when I say full-on, I don't mean sort of Hellraiser in terms of blood and gore yeah. and so forth, because, you know, that wasn't Powell's sensibility. He wanted to make a psychological thriller which actually had horror elements in it. And Carl Bohm's performance is extraordinary. It's a lot more three-dimensional than Norman Bates, because, yeah. you know, you felt that. I mean, the same, there's the comment, 
that no Powell is more interested in people as characters, whereas Hitchcock, with the exception of Vertigo, is interested as people as plot devices. Yeah. You know, the characters are there to move the story yeah, on and to right. get, you know. Yeah. It's like if you look at North by Northwest, in which, you know, it doesn't really matter who Cary Grant is playing, <laughs> so long as we can put him in a position where he can yeah. be chased through a crop yeah. field and hanging off the Washington Monument and that sort of thing. Um, so you have, you know, you, and the, crucially in terms of the psychological... It, thing that happens to Mark. It could just be a lazy shorthand in the way that, no, bits of Psycho do feel psychologically, well, not lazy, but yeah. dated today. But actually, he does come across as a lonely, fractured young man who struggles with himself. And actually, the unusual thing about it is that Boehm has a very light Austrian accent, which is never sort of explained as saying, oh, he was you no know, yeah. born in Austria, but he yeah. grew up in London. But it actually adds a sort of, because he's speaking in almost broken English, it adds yeah. a disjointed quality. Mm. Um, it does explore the relationship between love and fear. I mean, the whole thing about it is that you know, Mark is getting slowly towards completing his documentary, but at the same time, he's having to fight feelings about you know, whether he actually loves Helen or whether he just wants to protect her from himself. And she's conflicted as well. And you know, that's the sort of the final savage trick of people. Tom, which is that we are, we feel so strongly about him that we can almost overlook all the bad things that he's done because we believe so strongly yeah. in possible redemption within their relationship. And again, that's not a case of, okay, so you murdered people, but hey, yeah. let's not worry about who killed who. <laughs> it's, it's a lot more complicated yeah. than that. So to sum up, it's a barnstorming masterpiece, which is up there with the red shoes as past finest achievement. It's complex, it's cerebral, it's beautifully directed. Otto Heller's visuals are lurid but also you know, wonderfully rich in that yeah. technicolor vein it's still as shocking and as terrifying as it was 50 years on i will actually say it's a better film than psycho and you no know, it's compelling chilling and nothing less than essential viewing so something to go and see absolutely yeah we talk about tyneside cinema of course it's their birthday soon isn't it 75th 75th yes. yes happy birthday to them and well done Bruno Mars and the Lazy Song. Now, t the uh, movie department, sports department, having the week off next week. Yes, we so are. We'll be uh, back in two weeks' time. Yes, when we will do Labyrinth, uh, Jim Henson's last film, featuring David Bowie in some very, very tight trousers. That sounds one to look out for. <laughs> right, let's have a look at um, next week. Uh, I need to do a bit of Googling while you're talking, but uh, you're not going to have too much to say about Jack and Jill, are you? It sounds like it's going to be the turkey of the week. It is the turkey of the week, so let's get it out of the way quickly. It's the new Adam Sandler comedy. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Um, it just makes your heart sink whenever you hear those three words together. Directed by Dennis Duggan, who has worked with Sandler extensively, made things like Happy Gilmore, uh, Grown Ups, and most recently Just Go With It. Now, you know you're in trouble when you, the best thing you can say about the film is Jennifer Aniston's in it. Um, so this time, Sandler is Jack, who's a successful advertising executive. His twin sister, Jill, who's also played by Sandler in drag, uh, turns up for Thanksgiving and makes his life a complete misery. Uh, Sandler has a wife played by Katie Holmes, to which she's a why is she in the film. Um, in the course of the film, he has to get Al Pacino, the real Al Pacino, to voice, to sign a contract to voice a series of adverts, and basically Al Pacino, playing himself, or an exaggerated version of himself, falls in love with Jill, who is of course Adam Sandler. Um, three things. First of all, it's a given, but not funny. I mean, not a single laugh in the whole thing. It's just rubbishly written and don't care about any of the characters. Secondly, the drag act is grotesque. I mean, at least when Eddie Murphy was doing the drag act and a massive makeup with a nutty professor in the 90s, 
there were moments when it worked because of how sort of misshapen and how bulbous the characters could be. But just seeing Adam Sandler, it smacks of just desperation. In order, no, in order to do drag, you have to be funny enough in the first place to get away with it. That's why Peter Sellers could do it. That's yeah. why Peter Cook could do it, because there's that fantastic sketch of him de playing the... Um, the spoof version of Greta Garber called Emma Bargo, which concludes with him riding around in a tank shouting, <laughs> I want to be alone! <laughs> that's fantastic. So that's the third. And the third thing is, you now, Al Pacino, why are you doing this? I mean, you don't need the money. You've already got loads from doing all those rubbish films with Robert De Niro. You just... It's just awful. I mean, no, I don't know how awful it is compared to Adam Sandler's other works of late, but it is awful. Yeah, I'm not a great fan of Adam Sandler, I've got to say. Good to say. Yes, he was in Saturday Night Live originally, wasn't he? Which yes, is a he did. Program I'm never quite sure about either. Anyway, on to young adults. Yeah, a new film by uh, Jason Reitman, who uh, directed Thank You for Smoking and Juno, and most recently Up in the Air. He is the son of Ivan Reitman, who directed the Ghostbusters series. Script by Diablo Cody, who also wrote Juno, and her most recent work was Jennifer's Body with Megan Fox, which was actually better than it sounded. Um, the story revolves around a teenage fiction author played by um, Charlize Theron, or because she's South African, you have to say Charlize Theron, because that's how she pronounces it. <laughs> um, and she, in order to do her job as a teenage sort of fiction author, she basically has stayed a teenager and prolonged her loan adolescence and she hears that her own boyfriend is getting married, our old boyfriend sorry, is getting married so she decides to go back to her hometown in Minnesota to basically break up his marriage and make yeah. his life a misery but on the way she meets this guy whom she wouldn't have looked at twice in high school and they develop a relationship. It's an odd little film. It's partly self-reflexive insofar as no, Diablo Cody has been accused since Juno of you know, writing teenagers as adults view teenagers. And there's the whole complaint about Juno who's no, no, teenagers don't talk like that. Yeah. Which I actually think is an invalid criticism because I think they do, or at least some of them do. Um, so she seems to have made this film, or at least written this script, in response to that, saying, okay, you think I'm a, you know, an adult writer who's prolonged her own adolescence, my next character will be a teenage writer who's prolonged her own adolescence. I don't think it's quite as successful as either Cody or Reitman's other efforts, but it is sort of scabrous when it needs to be, and, you know, it's, you no, know, it puts an interesting slant on the whole nostalgia craze that we're in at the moment, particularly with the news recently that Ferris Bueller is going to get a sequel. Yeah. Which I'm already dreading, because Ferris... <laughs> no, because Ferris Bueller is a really great film and yeah. you know, don't mess with stuff that if it ain't broke don't fix it I think it's ultimately incidental but Charlize Theron is very good and if you like her in this go and watch her in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers which is a flawed film but she does a very good Brodeckland impression good great well it must be at least two weeks since we've had a Jamie Bell film on the programme yes he is working extensively at the moment um, Man on a Ledge yes new film by Asghar Leth who made Ghosts of City Soleil and Waterbug neither of which I've seen this is his first Hollywood film um, Sam Worthington who was in Terminator Salvation and Clash of the Titans is basically Channing Tatum without the talent or the range yeah. of facial expressions um, he is an ex-cop now wanted by the law who is you no. Know, goes out on a ledge on a very high building and threatens to jump. Elizabeth Banks is the negotiator trying to talk him down, who realises that there's actually something else going on that he's distracting from. Co-starring Jamie Bell, playing um, Sam Worthington's brother, who's also a safe cracker, which will be, I can't give away why yeah. that's important, but it will be. And also a supporting performance by Ed Harris, who is doing sort of um, Peter Philip Seymour Hoffman or Peter Ustinov style makeup. And yeah. it's, it's if you, there's an HBO film coming out called Game Change, where Ed Harris plays uh, John McCain and Julianne Moore plays Sarah Palin. If you've seen the trailer, the resemblance is really scary. Yeah. Um, 
It has underperformed at the US box office despite a lot of campaigning. It's been on bus shelters all around Newcastle. But it's a film which is half decent for the first few minutes and then has quite literally nowhere to go. Yeah. I mean, the plot twist involving the heist is contrived and it does feel like, like a lot of his films, I mean, something like Jumper, it feels like Jamie Bell is the best thing in it and he's yeah. swimming against the tide yeah. of all the the trashy stuff coming at him. Worthington is a rubbish actor. I mean, he just basically has one facial expression, which is... Hmm. <laughs> uh, which doesn't really work on radio, but it's that sort of thing. It's not as engaging as, as Phone Booth or even Entrapment. It is, at best, a 30-minute episode of, well, the equivalent of CSI, which has been stretched out three times more than it needs to be. Did I read Jamie um, Bell's Getting Married this week? I think you might have done. Yes. Um, if yeah. he is, congratulations. Yes, indeed. If yes. he's not, yes. make it soon. Yeah. <laughs> Next one, Journey to... The Mysterious Island, yes, rather than Journey to the Mysterious Island, as I previewed it earlier on in the show. Yes. Um, it's the sequel to the 2008 hit uh, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, which is loosely based on the Jules Verne books. Um, not, no relation, of course, to the, the 1959 version of Journey to the Centre of the Earth with James Mason, which is very, very good. Um, the original was directed by Eric Brevig, who did the visual effects for Men in Black, and this, uh, has since directed Jogi Bear. This installment is done by Brad Payton, who made the Cats and Dogs sequel. Uh, this time you have Dwayne The Rock Johnson replacing Brendan <laughs> Fraser. At the beginning of the film, um, Sean Anderson, who's the young boy from the first film, played by uh, Josh Hutchinson, receives a coded distress signal from an island that isn't on any map. He sets off to answer it with his newfound stepfather, played by Johnson, and his stepdaughter, played by Vanessa Hudgens. They basically have to save the inhabitant of the island, who's played by Michael Caine, before it sinks under the water. So, it's Atlantis. Um, it's, there is an old convention in sort of horror movies or erotic thrillers of making sequels of basically the same story, but with different members. So, in another nine and a half weeks, yeah. it's Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger's sister in American Psycho 2 it's a 12 year old girl whose babysitter dated Patrick Bateman <laughs> that's how she became yeah. a killer so it's essentially the tenuous excuse to say the same old story again it is essentially a theme park ride you know you go from one bit to another bit to another bit to another bit and there's no real plot to speak of to tie them together because you could do them in any order um very young children will ex will enjoy the spectacle of it, but you don't need it in 3D, and it is essentially a crunky old pot boiler. Yes. Now what we were busy Googling about, because um, there was a 60s television series called Mary, Mungo and Midge, and now we have a film called Martha, Marcy, May and Marlene. Which have is... we just about used all the M names up now? <laughs> well, my surname, of course, no, but yes. uh, that wouldn't have got us very far. Yeah, it's the debut film from writer-director Sean Durkin, who uh, won a prize for directing at Sundance last year, and features uh, an award-winning performance by Elizabeth Olsen, who is the other Olsen sister alongside yeah. Mary Kate and Ashley, who have you know, had a brief film career but not didn't do anything of note. So Olsen plays a young girl called Martha, who at the beginning of the film is seen fleeing from a farmhouse in a part of the American countryside where everything seems surreal, sort of yeah. you know, whitewashed walls, nice you know, trees around and so forth. Turns out that she has been a prisoner of a creepy cult <laughs> that has been imprisoning yeah. young women, and she is seeking to return to normal life while the head of the cult played in a very commanding performance by John Hawkes are trying to track her down. The film is being hailed as this year's Winter's Bone because of its Sundance connections, yeah. because of uh, the star-making performance of uh, Elizabeth Olsen. I think in a couple of years it may well be seen as a star-making film rather than a great film in and of itself. It, is, it has this strangely uncomfortable tone in the manner of deliverance. There's bits in there as well of um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, the Peter Weir film, which is very ethereal, but there's a sort of creepy undertone to it. Um, it does make allusions to all the stuff surrounding the Manson family cult of the late 60s, so, you know, which, again, because we'll be doing Polanski's new film in a second, that does, does sort of bring uncomfortable yeah. memories to the fore. Or, of course, you look back to um, River and Joaquin Phoenix, who came from this strange fundamentalist yeah. cult, in, you know, which is, you know, so it taps into all of that, and if you have 
first-hand memories of that, you will be a lot uncomfortable with it. But there are signs here of future promise on both sides of the camera. I think that Elizabeth Olsen, you know, it does give a very, very good performance. I don't think the film is as good as her performance as a whole, but watch these two in future. So it's not Mary Mungo and Mitch, then? No, it's quite a long distance <laughs> Mary Mungo and Mitch. I would like to see a feature-length version of that, because I've seen bits and pieces of Mary Mungo and Mitch, and it was quite good. Yes. Um, Roman Polanski, to finish with. Yes. Um, and, uh, Carnage. Yes, um, new film by Roman Polanski, who needs no introduction. Um, last film of his was The Ghost Writer, which was really, really great. Based on the Tony Award-winning play by, um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, um, Jasmina Reza, which was translated into English by Christopher Hampton, who wrote the screenplay for Dangerous Liaisons, yeah. and uh, has since been adapted for the screen by Reza and Polanski. So it's set in Brooklyn, in New York, and it begins with an altercation between two grade school boys, which results in one hitting the other in the mouth with a stick and knocking out his <laughs> two front teeth. Um, this results in the two parents meeting up to discuss the matter. You have the Cowans, played by John C. Riley and Jodie Foster, and the Longstreets, played by Christoph Waltz and Kate Winslet. So, yeah. a very good cast for a four-hander play, or film, rather. It is very good, albeit a case of Polanski soft-pedalling a little bit, but no, to be honest, Polanski treading water is better than a lot of directors from <laughs> yeah. full tilt. And it does come back to a recurrent theme in Polanski's work of architecture harbouring some kind of menacing force and reflecting the mental landscape of the characters. I mean, that's, you know, in some of his early films, that's handled quite literally. I mean, you look at something like Repulsion, which yeah. deals with the character's fear of men by having male hands coming out of the walls and groping her. So that is yeah. very... That, Repulsion's a great film. And... It, when it done when it's done well, that idea is deeply effective. So in this case, you have this pristine middle class or upper middle class apartment in which everything's yeah. very sort of nice and glossy on the surface, but actually there are horrible tensions and nastiness underneath the surface. We are in very familiar territory. I mean, it does owe attention uh, a, a debt to Polanski's apartment trilogy, of which Repulsion yeah. is the first instalment. There's also big hints of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, which yeah. is still very near the bone. You said we'd come back to her. Yes, and no, that, I think, because that's one of the first performances after Cleopatra that they did together, and yeah. it's arguably their best work together. I don't think it's quite as cinematic as you might expect. I mean, no, because it's such a, a, a claustrophobic situation, there is a temptation for it to get stagey. And I think it is very worn, worn territory, but the performances are very, very good. And it is an example of what Polanski does in putting audiences through the mill yeah. in a manner which is ultimately rewarding. So, recommendations for the week. Uh, Carnage is the film of the week, uh, followed by Martha Marcy May Marlene. Right, so... And if you want something a little more uh, easy, then go for young adult. So, uh, plenty to uh, think about there. Right. Well, you're going to be back Thursday, are you? Yeah, Thursday 1 till 3, and uh, that'll be my last Thursday show before I go on my week holiday in Devon. Right, and I will be back not next Saturday, but I will be here Sunday afternoon, although it's not on the board yet, but I'll put that in. If you fancy joining me between 3 and 5 next Sunday afternoon, I think we might be doing a bit of country music. Why not? Wonderful. All right. Okay, just before we go, let me just uh, give you a bit more uh, winter sports news. Uh, and tell you that the match between Portsmouth and Hull um, has been uh, cancelled this afternoon. That's the first victim in the championship. And also in League Two, the game between Swindon and Burton Albion. No, Burton Albion have got up to uh, League Two, and that's been cancelled. And racing at Fontwell tomorrow has already been cancelled due to a frozen track. Yeah, and uh, I guess we may lose a few matches in the Annick area um, today as well, particularly if this snow comes as they keep threatening. Touch wood, it won't. Yeah. Wellies, boots. Scarves. Big hats. Right. We'll be back with you in two weeks' time. Let's go to the news now in London. It's coming up to 11 o'clock. Have a great day. Bye-bye.
Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.